0: In the last several years, China has become a household word. China is challenging the United States' economic and political influence in different parts of the world. More recently, the country has begun to leverage its strength to be a bigger player in the Middle East. China has caught people's attention early in 2021 when it announced a long-term deal with Iran for the purchase of Iranian oil. Has Tehran found a major power backer in Beijing? China's trying to win friends elsewhere in the region, too, like Israel. On one hand, China's investment is incredibly enticing, large-scale infrastructure projects at low costs. On the other hand, the U.S., Israel's strongest ally, firmly opposes China's expansion. How can Israel have closer ties with Beijing without hurting its strategic relationship with Washington? Where's the balance?
1: When Israel promotes its relations with China and with other countries, it has to balance between economic uh, concerns and considerations and national security.
2: China is friends with everyone, or tries to be, but is allies with nobody. They don't want to be affiliated with any one side of any one conflict.
0: Hello and welcome to Decision Points. My name is David Murkowski the Ziegler Distinguished Fellow and Director of the Project on Arab-Israel Relations at the Washington Institute, and I'm excited to go on this journey examining Israel's policy decisions with you. Israel's been thinking about China for a long time. In the 1930s, David Ben-Gurion proclaimed that China would be one of the, quote, great powers of the future, end quote. In 1950, Israel became the first Middle East country to recognize Mao Zedong's People's Republic of China. This was contrary to America's exclusive support for Taiwan. During the 1960s and 70s, Israel's relationship with China was muted as the Soviet Union, one of China's main backers, was also funding Israel's enemies. In the 1980s, after China split from its close ties to the Soviet Union, Israel began cultivating covert cooperation with China. In 1992, Israel and China officially established diplomatic relations. I was in Beijing as a journalist at the time. From 2001 to 2018, trade between Israel and China grew by a 1,000%.
2: China is the new land of opportunities. When we grew up, it was Israel was looking at uh, the U.S., maybe Europe. Today it's China. For Israeli companies who want to grow global, China is becoming a must.
0: China is particularly interested in Israeli water technology, its agriculture, telecommunications, and defense technology. In the past two decades, there have been numerous high-profile deals between Israeli companies and Chinese firms. For example, China acquired high stakes in Israel's Tanuva Dairy and its energy company Delic. The most high-profile Chinese purchase was the 25-year deal between Israel and China to build and operate a portion of the Haifa seaport, signed in 2019. Furthermore, more than 1,000 Israeli startup companies have set up operations in China.
2: With the new technology, we can make people
0: live longer, personalize their medicine, prevent a lot of the diseases that are available. All of that is happening um, Uh, in exciting ways in Israel, and we're very excited about trying to bring this technology to China. Our country, the U.S., also has extensive trade and economic relationships with China, but it is also watching these investments in Israel with a wary eye. Not only does the U.S. fear the expansion of Chinese influence, but it also fears Israel's vulnerability as a result of China's influence in that country. Israel is ceded to the creation of an oversight committee, for foreign investments in 2019 that later began functioning in 2020. China's influence in the Middle East has only expanded in the previous decade. In 2013, China announced the Belt and Road Initiative, known as BRI, a plan for Chinese investment in global infrastructure that includes Chinese-built roads from Singapore to Madrid, as well as new shipping routes to and from China. As of January 2021, China's BRI has constructed projects in 171 countries. In some cases, China's investment has turned into significant economic leverage. An ever-growing superpower, China is increasingly dependent on Middle East oil. This has brought Beijing and Tehran closer together. It is not surprising that Iran is boasting of such ties in order to insulate itself from threats of American and European sanctions during the nuclear talks. Have ties with China been a windfall for Iran as it seeks to resist international pressure? What are China's goals in Israel and the Middle East at large? Where does this leave the U.S.-Israel relationship? To discuss these questions, I'm joined by two people who have written extensively about China and the Middle East, Asaf Orion and Mike Singh. Asaf Orion is a senior fellow at the Tel Aviv-based Institute for National Security Studies, INSS. He was a Brigadier General in the Israel Defense Forces, where he focused on a range of issues, including strategic planning. Mike Singh is the Lane Swig Senior Fellow and Managing Director at the Washington Institute. He's also a former Senior Director for Middle East Affairs at the National Security Council in the White House. So thank you both for joining us today. Mike Singh, it's great to have you. And Asaf, uh, welcome back.
2: Thanks for having us, David.
0: Shalom. Thank you for having us. Great, great. So, Mike, I want to start with you. Uh, On March 27th of this year, uh, 2021, China and Iran signed a strategic agreement. Does this very achievement of an agreement help ease Iran's economic isolation as its nuclear program remains a point of controversy?
2: Well, David, obviously this China-Iran agreement got a lot of attention uh, in the American press. um, For for lots of different reasons, you know, some in the U.S. said, "Oh, this shows the failure of maximum pressure, which was the Trump administration's policy toward Iran at the time." And some, you know, you know, especially on the right, suggested that this indicates that China is sort of coming into the region now, allied with Iran to try to uh, to try to dominate the Middle East. I don't think either one is really right. The agreement is, I think, an aspirational agreement more than anything. Um, What will China's investments in Iran actually amount to? Um, We don't know. And it will probably depend more on what China perceives the economic opportunities and economic costs uh, of dealing with Iran to be. We didn't, for example, see China in a very meaningful way, help Iran to get around or sort of circumvent U.S. sanctions under the Trump administration's maximum pressure policy. And frankly, I think a lot of Iranians were disappointed with uh, China and and also Russia's failure uh, to come to their aid during during this difficult time for Iran. To dismiss the agreement or to dismiss what's behind the agreement, the development of the China-Iran relationship, would be a mistake. Because to me, there's no doubt that for China, for Beijing, their relationship with Iran is their most strategic, most important relationship in the region. Um, Iran offers them a lot. Iran is a country uh, on the Persian Gulf, a very important waterway for China because it gets still most of its energy imports from that region. Uh, It's the only one which isn't allied with the United States. Uh, And in fact, Iran and China share the desire uh, to see the United States lose our sort of privileged position in the international system. They they share a desire to remake uh, or reshape the international system. Asaf, do you see it the same way? I
1: mostly concur with uh, Mike, there are uh, clear tensions between the interests and goals of China and Iran. So I would say uh, uh, we need to follow the, the details and how they transpire into facts uh, and uh, at the same time uh, to watch at uh, several issues here. One is that China became Iran's main oil importer, like 50% of what Iran exports in oil goes to China. And in parallel, China decreased its own uh, dependency on Iranian oil to less than uh, 3% or around 3%. And uh, this means that China plays, uh, pays close attention to uh, dependence as a strategic uh, factor. I think they're both uh, gearing up to a massive flow of uh, oil, and uh, that's the next uh, thing to watch.
0: Mike, you follow both Iran and China. What do you think the implications of the China-Iran relationship are for Iran in its position in the Middle East?
2: Well, I think you have to look at the short term and the long term. Uh, In the short term, look, right now, the Biden administration is trying to sort of coax Iran back into the 2015 nuclear agreement the JCPOA uh, and it hasn't succeeded yet and i think this has taken the biden administration by surprise you know why why is it that iran uh, refuses to come back uh, to this deal even after an offer of significant sanctions relief uh, from the united states well beyond what was offered uh, initially in the JCPOA i think one reason that uh, that maybe behind iran's reluctance is its feeling that it now has options beyond the west it has options beyond the united states and europe for its economic well-being and obviously the main option would be china Um, i don't think this view is universally held inside iran but i think it is a much stronger view among those that we would consider hardliners in iran that really they're they're better off focusing on the relationship with russia and china and not developing these sort of economic dependencies on the West, um, whether it's Europe or the United States, uh, that would come with sanctions relief. Really, the removal of U.S. sanctions on Iran are actually key for the development of the Iran-China relationship, um, because for China to trade robustly in oil with Iran, um, it will have to, it will want to do so without fear of American secondary sanctions, uh, and that, of course, means a return to the JCPOA. In the long run, I think we have to look at what China is trying to do in the world to understand how Iran might be affected. Um, There is, I think, little doubt at this stage that China is trying to create mechanisms. For example, it's creating a digital currency that would insulate it from any efforts at economic pressure by the United States. It sort of reads the tea leaves in the U.S., understands that both Democrats and Republicans are increasingly wary of China, increasingly see China as America's biggest national security challenge. And so it's taking measures to, um, to basically reflect that reality, and it's taking measures to ensure that the United States uh, can't use sanctions or, or other forms of pressure against it. That could have a secondary benefit for other American adversaries like Iran, uh, who have been targeted by sanctions. If Iran were able to trade in oil with China, uh, or with other countries, without fear of American secondary sanctions, that would really change the nature of Iran-U.S. Uh, relations and of uh, uh, American policy options.
1: Asaf, how, how do you see it? In a sense, both Iran and uh, China are uh, worried of encirclement in a strategic, strategic sense. And uh, such, such um, an agreement or an axis of uh, relations is encouraging Iran that it's not alone and uh, it also strengthens its uh, its rivals uh, paradoxically many of those uh, rivals are also strategic uh, comprehensive strategic partners of china mike mentioned that iran is perhaps uh, china's most important partner actually the trade with uh, china's trade with saudi arabia and the uae both of them uh, comprehensive strategic partners with china far exceeds uh, that uh, with uh, with Iran, one can also assume that uh, stronger China Iran relations is encouraging the friends of Iran in the region like Syria and Hezbollah. But zooming out, I would say it's a very uh, complicated uh, situation, ridden with uh, complexities and and contradictions. I think we should assume that China is more concerned by regional instability than by nuclearization. Uh, We know uh, China helped uh, Iran's uh, nuclear program in its uh, infancy. It also provided uh, Saudi Arabia with uh, surface-to-surface missiles, two generations by now. And it's uh, today uh, helping uh, Saudi Arabia with uh, uranium uh, extraction. So you have this effect that it's actually advancing or uh, fanning the uh, nuclear arms race uh, in the Middle East. Uh, what uh, in Israel we looked at in, in the potentially new uh, deal of all the, the agreement uh, of a comprehensive uh, strategic partnership is the potential for stronger military defense technological an intelligence cooperation between China and Iran. Israel was already on the receiving end of Chinese weapons. So actually, Iran and China is the convergence of the number one threats of uh, Israel and uh, the U.S. combined. And this uh, portrays a potential uh, to discuss uh, anti-access area denial uh, challenges missiles, missile defenses, drones, UAVs, and other uh, military technologies which uh, might stem from China and appear in the Middle East or vice versa.
0: Rand Corporation researchers Andrew Scobo and Ali Reza Nader described China in the Middle East as, quote, an economic heavyweight, a diplomatic lightweight, and a military featherweight. I wonder if you think this is accurate and how would you define China's strategy in the Middle East is part of a, a global strategy, and how has it evolved?
2: Where does the Mideast fit in for China? This characterization of, of China, I think it's a misguided view, because I think it creates a false distinction between economic power and interests and political power and interests. If you look at what's happening right now, or, or what's happened in the in the recent past between China and Australia, for example... China uh, does tremendous trade with Australia. Australian exporters um, are are quite dependent, actually, on Chinese markets. And China recently tried to essentially use this economic relationship, this economic dependency, um, for diplomatic blackmail, sending Australia a list of 14 political demands Um, demanding, for example, that Australia muzzle its free press uh, in terms of uh, that uh, Australian journalist's criticism of China, um, and basically said, look, we're not going to resume trade with you. We're not going to unblock your exports until you meet these demands. And so, you know, the, the idea that somehow China's major economic presence in the Middle East doesn't have diplomatic implications or even security implications I think is wrong. And, and furthermore, I think it's also outdated to say that China doesn't engage diplomatically or militarily in the Middle East. We have seen increasing both diplomatic and military engagement by Beijing in the region. It's still modest compared to that of the United States and Russia, um, but it's not certainly not zero. It is growing. And of course, China's potential For diplomatic and military intervention uh, on short order are are significant, far more significant than any other external power um, besides the U.S. and Russia. Uh, And so I think we have to scrap this view. I think China's strategy—you know what I've what I've written—is that China's strategy has essentially four pillars in the region, and I'll I'll describe them very briefly. Um, And these pillars sort of are based upon both regional interests, which China has had for a long time, but also you have to combine those regional interests with China's growing global interests. Um, And that includes things like the Belt and Road Initiative um, and the desire to avoid containment and develop China's West, which sort of underpin the Belt and Road Initiative, as well as the growing U.S.-China rivalry. And so this produces a a strategy which, as I said, has four pillars. Uh, Number one, we see China leading with economic benefits in all of its relationships in the region. And that's both for China's own economic benefit, but also to create those dependencies that I mentioned before. Pillar two, China is friends with everyone, or tries to be, but is allies with nobody. China tries to balance its relations in the region, you know, between Saudi Arabia and Iran, as Asaf mentioned, between the Israelis and Palestinians, between different factions in Libya, you name it. They don't want to be affiliated with any one side of any one conflict. They also, though, don't want any country in the Middle East to look to them uh, for support in a crisis. Number three, China sees uh, the Middle East as a source of strategic benefits, and it quietly pursues those strategic benefits. Things like high-tech exports from Israel, uh, things like the China-Iran relationship and the strategic benefits that that brings, that we described earlier. Uh, China pursues all these things actively and with determination, but uh, the important, most important word here is quietly. China is not looking at this stage, it's not looking to openly confront the United States in the Middle East. Pillar four, very briefly, I think China is trying to bolster its own political and diplomatic role in the region and undermine that of the United States. Um, And it uses various uh, tools, especially soft power tools to do this, social media, um, broadcast media. Uh, It uses its seat on the UN Security Council uh, and so forth.
0: Asaf, what has been achieved between China and Israel? What are the underlying forces that drive this relationship closer? Uh, well, as a keen uh, reader in,
1: in this field, I uh, usually suggest to, uh, not to overstate Belt and Road Initiative as, as an overarching banner uh, of policy, even though it's a vision and, and it's a great compass for strategy. It's being overused by Chinese propaganda those who echo it, either wittingly or unwittingly, and also by China bashers. So let's let's look at the facts themselves, uh, the the activities, the projects, uh, one by one. It's it's uh, it's more informative than than the banner of of the Belt and Road. Uh, when Israel uh, looked at uh, China uh, in the last decades, it saw a customer for It's innovation, a source of capital, a source of products, a great provider of infrastructure, which in Israel, as in other places, are a bit backwards to uh, where we need to be. And China found in Israel a source for this innovation and a relatively uh, stable place for investment. Uh, the the driving force uh, behind this was definitely Prime Minister Netanyahu, alongside uh, with him, uh, Isail Katz as the Minister of uh, Transportation. You see that the China trade uh, with Israel between 2010 and 20 uh, doubled from about uh, 6.7 billion dollars to about 12, and that's of course a trade deficit as most nations with China, because a third of it is ex- export and two-thirds is uh, import uh, from China to Israel. So when we look at the the actual uh, benefits, uh, since 2007, uh, close to $6 billion of uh, Chinese investment were made in infrastructure in Israel, mostly in transportation, uh, ports and electricity, electric power. Uh, Last decade, um, China uh, invested in Israel at least $19 billion dollars Uh, out of which 9 uh, billion in technology. And it sounds a lot, but actually it's about or less than 10% from uh, the uh, investment in Israel. Uh, I I wouldn't overstate the proportional share of uh, China in uh, Israel's economy, although it's a very important source. And as a trend, I must point that uh, according to our uh, research, the numbers are declining after a peaking in 2018, mostly to uh, restrictions on capital exports from China, uh, a little on corona and perhaps some uh, chill, chilling effect of uh, more supervision and the great power competition.
2: Mike, do you see it the same way? So I don't disagree with Asaf, but I think it misses the bigger picture, uh, If we're if we're being honest. And that bigger picture is twofold. Number one. I think the concern about the Belt and Road Initiative that the United States has is the way that taken together, these projects amount to a coordinated effort, a concerted effort to project Chinese um, economic influence and potentially political and military influence far to China's West. I think there's a lot of concern, not just in the United States, but growing concern in Europe, for example, about China's sort of significant weight in infrastructure in Europe, in the Middle East, in Central Asia, and so forth, and the strategic advantages it could confer uh, to China. So it's not just about the numbers. It's not just about each individual project um, and the economic rationale behind each one of those projects. It's about the the Belt and Road Initiative and the infrastructure ambitions that China has had taken together. But I think there's another issue which is really at the root of much of this disagreement, which is, look, Israel is the closest American ally in the Middle East by far. So I, I think there's a real disconnect, frankly, between Washington and Jerusalem on this issue. My fear is that uh, Israelis often miss the forest for the trees on this issue.
0: So, Asaf, so how do, how do you see Israel as easing American concerns about its relationship with China?
1: I hear very uh, closely uh, what uh, Mike, Mike is saying, and indeed, I think we need to address Uh, two dimensions or two levels of, uh, let's say, tensions uh, in this uh, policy issue uh, between Israel and China. Um, Many times we tend to focus that the only limitation on uh, uh, Israel's relations with uh, China is the U.S. and the U.S. constraints. And indeed, uh, U.S. concerns are uh, probably... Uh, the most important consideration on Israel's uh, table when dealing with those. But it's not the only one, because like other states, when Israel promotes its relations with China and with other countries, it has to balance between economic uh, concerns and considerations and national security. Uh, So we need to look at our independence, at our uh, dependency or lack of of uh, tech transfer, of cyber uh, uh, security, and, uh, as we mentioned before, even China's relations with Iran. I think we we need to inform ourselves by by history. The clearest place where Israel actually banned all trade with uh, China is on defense, military, and uh, and dual use. Uh, Since the great power competition sharpened in the last years, Uh, America approached its uh, close allies and partners to limit their relations with China, and Israel was included. And I think the template of what we saw of America doing was pretty, pretty constant. And in that sense, when Mike says uh, that we don't see the forest from the trees, actually the one who has been barking up those trees is America. Uh, I'm, I'm not saying, uh, saying it in an, uh, a critical way, but in a factual way. Israel heard three main things uh, from, uh, from its U.S. partners. 5G, like fifth generation uh, cellular communication, the Haifa port, and uh, investment. We need, I think, to expand beyond ways and means of specific trees, as uh, Mike uh, called them, to talk about the ends. How do we together preserve uh, technological superiority? How do we protect ourselves together from tech transfer, which is illicit, and to uh, mitigate and decrease the risks of foreign influence? But in what uh, Mike says, there is another deeper and more important uh, aspect that exceeds uh, facts, threats, and responses. Uh, because it comes from mythical and uh, uh, on the verge of uh, fantastic, like facts do not matter. I think that we need to look at the facts. Most of Israel's innovation ecosystem is looking west. Much of what we hear in American discourse is a subtext that in in its uh, time of hardship Israel stands uh, by America's worst uh, rival, its a generational uh, adversary, uh, China. That's not the case. Israel is not standing by uh, China. And whoever says, oh, Israel must uh, choose between America and China, well, the, the news, which is old, is that Israel already chosen. It has a strategic ally in all but name in America, and it has an important trade partner in China, like many others, including America.
0: If you were to predict the trajectory of Chinese-Israeli ties in the coming years, given all the limitations that you mentioned, where does it go? The Israel-China relations were always conducted under
1: the shadow of the U.S.-China relations. And this means that uh, the more the great power competition Sharpens and and increases uh, Israel-China uh, relations uh, will face more and more difficulties, and uh, we we need to uh, see how Israel manages its relations between its closest strategic ally and an important trade and economy partner.
0: If I hear you correctly, I'm hearing you say. If there was a triangle between Israel, Washington and Beijing, that ultimately it's, it's not much of a contest, that ultimately Israel's strategic relationship is with the United States.
1: So, yes, I think that strategically our lot uh, was, was uh, thrown with the U.S. long ago and China is not uh, a substitute, nor is it being considered a substitute either neither by itself nor by Israel. And when, when you look into the horizon, I believe, assess, not that I hope for it, but I think that the peak of the Israel-China relations is already behind us.
0: All right. So given what you just heard from Asaf, Mike, do you see Israel making sincere efforts to you know address America's concerns?
2: Look, I think Asaf's point, um, which, which echoes the points that you'll hear from Israeli officials on this subject, they're, they're well taken. I think that the United States needs to, number one, um, hammer out its own China strategy. What, what are we doing to address some of the types of threats that we're concerned uh, that our allies are facing? Uh, and of course, the, the, this opens us up to charges of hypocrisy. How can we ask our allies to do more than we are able to do ourselves. And oftentimes our limitations are um, uh, stemming directly from uh, bureaucracy. We have to address uh, our own strategy first and our own actions first. And then, frankly, we need to make a compelling case to our partners that focuses on on their interests and not just ours. You can't simply go to even a strong partner like Israel and say, don't do this because we don't want you to. Um, they're a democracy. They have multiple constituencies they have to consider, And so we have to make a good case as to why some Israeli political leader should uh, basically make the effort and sometimes pay the cost of rallying uh, different constituencies inside Israel or whatever partner we're talking about um, to forego what's ultimately a a sort of uh, lucrative and and, uh, in some ways beneficial relationship uh, or or activity. I, I think that ultimately the United States was not able to convince the Netanyahu government Uh, of our concerns. But I think that Asaf is also right that we need to be not just defensive, not just protective, but also proactive. Because look, David, the real problem is the United States wants to uh, decrease our involvement in the Middle East. We want to shift our resources, especially military resources, but also diplomatic uh, resources to East Asia. And that means we need a different mechanism to safeguard our interests, um, which are shared with allies like Israel in the Middle East. And that means allies like Israel needing to step up in conjunction with partners like the UAE, Saudi Arabia, and so forth to protect those mutual interests. We've seen some good steps towards that in, in recent years, I think notably the Abraham Accords. Abraham Accords are so exciting and, and, and promising because they open up the possibility for US partners to work together without necessarily having direct American intervention um, uh, to do that. So we don't need to mediate, perhaps, anymore between Israel and the UAE, for example, or Israel, uh, even in Saudi Arabia, if if the next steps are, are taken um, that we hope will be taken. Instead, those countries can work directly together and America can be a partner to those efforts uh, rather than, as I said, a sort of mediator. We'll, but those same partners will need to avoid, um, ideally from the American perspective, the type of hedging behavior that you might um, suspect uh, could occur as the United States steps back a bit, and that hedging behavior could mean, uh, you know, more accommodation of Russia and China. For example, we we I think would like to see our partners work proactively on, with the United States on a strategy to defend against, you know, for example, China trying to use its relationship with Israel to surpass the American military in certain high tech F- areas without necessarily having to see the same very heavy American uh, presence or intervention in the Middle East. And I think that will be difficult to pull off. The U.S. and Israel can do it. Um, You know, if if any two countries can, it's the U.S. and Israel, because we do share such a close partnership and so many interests. But I think if uh, the converse of that is if the U.S. and Israel fail to do it, we can't expect success anywhere else in the Middle East. And so there's a lot riding on this U.S.-Israel partnership and the U.S. and Israel getting this right very
0: interesting and on that note of hope i would like to thank you both both mike singh and asaf orion for your really interesting perspectives on a very complex but you know new challenge that for the united states as china uh, and the u.s engage in this great power competition and as israel emerges from its isolation and given its high-tech growth So I would like to thank both of you for joining us today. Thank you, David. Thank you. Shalom. I think with, between Asaf and Mike, we really had a fascinating discussion about China's relationships with the Middle East in general and with Israel as part of it. Both agreed their deep concern about Chinese-Iranian relationships and how Iran has built on this. Where there was not as much a consensus was the question of how extensive were these ties between China and Israel. With Asaf thinking it was more limited and therefore not a problem as much for the U.S., and my voicing concerns that there might be some problematic dimensions. They both agreed that if there are any two countries on the planet that can sort this out, it would be the United States and Israel, given the closeness of their relationship. This is crucial because other countries will say, well, if you can't convince Israel, given your closeness, you certainly can't convince us. But the two countries with such depth and breadth in the bilateral relationship, they have the ability to sort this out. And therefore, I'm optimistic that uh, these questions of where is the line will be sorted out between these two allies, the United States and Israel. I want to thank all of our listeners from all over the world. I hope you join us for all of Season 3. Please go to your favorite podcast app to rate, review, and subscribe to Decision Points. And tell your friends! I also recently published a book co-authored with Ambassador Dennis Ross called Be Strong and of Good Courage, How Israel's Most Important Leaders Shaped Its Destiny. I want to thank all of those who made this podcast possible. Our coordinator, Sheridan Cole, and our researcher, Alex Harris. I also want to thank Jeff Rubin, Scott Rogers, and Carolina Krauskopf of the Washington Institute. And finally, Richard Myron and Lindsay Riley, our production team at Earshot Strategies. Thank you all.